1: Hello, I'm Scott Sasha. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the Return of the SPAC Sports Business Podcast, the Sportacast.
0: Now, how many people will shut off if I start singing? Return of the SPAC. <laughs> get a little Mark Morrison th- in you yeah yeah. Th- hey well done Evan Williams I didn't think you'd get on it. should there.
1: Sportico write a return of the SPAC story I feel like we could do uh, some very insider kind of funny SNL spoof style uh, rendition of that
0: I would like to see you me and Brendan Coffee sitting down trying to come up with some sort of good lyric for return of the Spack. <laughs>
1: To be I debuted, don't know Scott, that. on our next podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, by the way, uh, greetings from Marlboro, Massachusetts, the Hyatt Place in Marlboro, site of, yet again, another hockey tournament for me. And this one is, is not the most enjoyable. My, my son broke his wrist, as you know, a while back, a couple of weeks. And so we're here watching a whole lot of hockey, but uh, maybe we'll put this on Twitter because it's been pretty funny. I've had a whole bunch of parents come up to me saying, hey, good for you. Being old school, like you're on the team and you came and your kid is doing what he can to help the team. And he's being around good for you. And then I have the other half going, are you insane? What are you doing here? Your kid's hurt and he's not playing like you drove four hours and you know, for what? So I don't know. I, I, I always think back what my dad would have done. And to me, if you're on the team and you're hurt, you go anyway, you know? And so he's on the bench and he's opening and closing it's a good the door lesson for him
1: to learn for sure.
0: Yeah, it's just because you're not playing doesn't mean you're not part of the team, and you don't get to be here. You know, it sucks that you got hurt. Maybe you shouldn't have gone on one of those electric scooters. Which, by the way, the uh, Ortho set is his new bread and butter. Used to be the old skate, the old skateboard. Now it's the electric scooter. Imagine. Just, <laughs> yep. Just just FYI. Anyway, so that that's where we are. But we started with Return of the Spac, um, Red Ball. The uh, the Spac, of course, involving Jerry Cardinal and Billy Bean. They have found a target. And it's a, a sector you know well. You're all into the ticketing space. Red Ball uh, going to take SeatGeek public. What should I know?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a it's it's a fascinating deal, and, and we don't I don't think know exactly how much the valuation is here. But uh, obviously, a kind of a tough 18 months for SeatGeek as it has been for for every ticketing platform out there. Just the the lack of of, of, of concerts and 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 sports uh, throughout most of 2020. Uh, but SeatGeek was was founded about a decade ago. The, the the whole premise was to be a data first and mobile first platform. And that's something that's been kind of ingrained in the product since it launched. They are, uh, have been one of the big corporate drivers behind these blended ticket marketplaces, which has kind of changed the entire, uh, ticket selling world in the past few years. This idea that you can have, primary tickets, so tickets that are sold directly from a team or from a venue or from an artist, alongside resale tickets, tickets that are sold by a broker or just an average fan who had them, can't go to the game and then wants to unload them. The fact that you can have those together in the same place, that is something that that SeatGeek pushed across the industry for a really long time. It's becoming more and more, more common now. And they have specific team deals, Scott, with the Brooklyn Nets and the Barclays Center were the most recent. They also work with the Cowboys, the Saints. There's a few other NBA teams. I believe there's a few other NFL teams. As well. Uh, so, certainly a lot in here that I'm sure Billy Bean, Jerry Cardinal, and the folks over at Redbird looked at and said, Yeah, I think this is a business that we can scale and something that 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 might benefit from being in the public markets.
0: Yeah, and of course, I mean, SeatGeek was founded about 2009. Some of the VC investors, you know, the guys at Causeway, Celtics owner with Grossbeck and Mark Juan, some other guys you may have heard of, uh, Eli and Peyton Manning, Carmelo Anthony's Mellow Seven Tech is an investor. Uh, rapper Nas, Elysian Park Ventures, you know, from the owners of the Dodgers, also uh, in, investors in Seatgate. Uh By the way, Red Ball raised what almost six hundred million, right, in its IPO. So you're just sort of getting five, evaluation five, yeah. on what these things can do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Vivid Seats, by the way, also going public in a merger with Horizon. Uh, Todd Bowley, Dodgers. Uh, that was valued at one point nine five billion. So you, you want to take any guess if? Uh, if Vivid is 1.95 billion, where Sea Geek might be, want to guess? And if, and if you don't, that's fine with me.
1: My my guess would be something between one and two billion. I, I would think that Vivid Seats is a certainly been around longer. And I think their the volume trading on their marketplace is, is probably a bit, a bit higher than what trades on the SeatGeek marketplace. Um I'm not sure the extent to which Vivid Seats has kind of these these custom primary deals that that, that seat geek is dipping into. But my guess would be something around the, the one billion, one and a half billion, something in there. But I but I you know I, I don't have any inside information on that.
0: Tell me, I mean, you're you're good at this. You know the ticketing world. I do not. I mean, it's pretty simple for me. I, I don't even consider, by the way, if I'm getting tickets and it gets delivered electronically, I'll get the app. It's fine. I don't even consider the platforms anymore. How different are the different platforms? Where are we headed? I know teams want to cut to the secondary market. They, they want to be involved in all transactions and make money. But what's the difference between Vivid, SeatGeek, Ticketmaster, You know, all, all through? I really don't pay attention to who is servicing my transactions.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I think for most fans, like you or I, who might, you know, look at a single hockey game and say, oh, I want to go to this game. Let me see if I can acquire tickets. It's not that different. I mean, the you see different fee structures at, at different companies. Some have fees included, some don't. Some are, you know, they're playing around with that stuff. But for the most part... A lot of tickets are listed on every site and they're roughly the same price, if not the exact same price on all the sites. I think that the thing that SeatGeek would probably tell you is one of their differences is that when they have deals with big primary deals with, with, like what they're doing with the Barclays Center and the Nets, I think they would like to think that their technology for the rights holder, for the team or for the venue is better than what some other people are doing. So so when they come in, they're going to handle all of the sales. Again, they'll do some primary. They will kind of blend that with the, with the secondary on their site. Um, and there's back-end technology there that makes teams' lives really easy, right? It's the reason why teams partner with a Ticketmaster or with a SeatGeek and don't and don't try to do it themselves. So I think there, there, there's probably a pitch that that the, the data, the data capture, the way they analyze the data, and, and the mobile portion of, of what they're doing, they'd like to think is better than others, and that might be kind of the the business proposition moving forward. All right, had the
0: NFLPA sold tickets to the goings on. Last week, I think I would have lined up and and bought some. And, and, you know, for the palace intrigue, for those that do not know, DeMora Smith, the executive director of the union that represents NFL players, uh, his contract is up pretty soon. So step one was to have the executive committee vote. Uh, He needed a unanimous vote of the executive committee to be eligible to stay on the job. It was 7-7. So he did not get that. So it moved on to step two, which was the vote of one representative, the player rep board, one from every team. He needed 22 of 32 votes. Guess how many he got, Eben?
1: I believe it was 22.
0: (laughs) It was 22. Exactly what he needed. Yeah, the vote was 22 and eight with two abstentions. So Demoris did at least tell the union, by the way, that this is it for me. So I don't know if he will get a 3-year deal which is customary or 4 whatever. He said this is it. This is the last time I'll run, so it might he might have to accept a shorter deal. He stressed that he is looking to figure out a succession plan. You know, it worked for David Stern at the NBA when they appointed Adam Silver. Everybody knew who the next person was. Uh the labor deal is a is a long term, so that is locked in. It's obviously one of the principal things that the union does for the players, but the you know, that labor deal did uh did rub some people the wrong way. So it was no certainty that DeMorris was going to get the votes he needed, but uh, very interesting timing. And this is sort of a, a side element to all of this insanity that on the day that the vote is taking place to see whether DeMoris will keep the job, the Wall Street Journal writes about an email that John Gruden sent a decade ago while he was at ESPN to a member of the Washington Redskins front office using some racially uh, charged language about Demoris Smith. And from what I can gather from the folks around the industry, boy, somebody really wanted Demoris to keep his job. Like this trove of emails has been around now (laughs) in this investigation. On the day the vote is coming, the story comes out that John Gruden, now, by the way, the head coach, of the Las Vegas Raiders sent this just disgustingly worded email about DeMorris, and he got the 22 votes he needed. So, I mean, so much palace intrigue going on here.
1: Yeah, it's it, it's a fascinating one, and and you know what I've always said about Demora Smith is that he has one of the hardest jobs in sports. Uh, he's compensated very well. I believe he was making around three million dollars a year. Um, but the NFLPA historically is not a uh, a players' association that has a tremendous amount of leverage. He's been criticized in the past few years for a number of things by 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 a number of players. One of which is is his coziness to to Roger Goodell. I think there there have been a number of players out there who have who have tweeted or said publicly. That, that, that they're looking for a change. Obviously, this is this was not a uh, he was not a shoe in to, to, to pass the executive committee. It needed to go to that second vote, as you just described. Um, but between the union's handling of of Colin Kaepernick's situation, the addition of the seventeenth regular season game, which happened in this most recent round of negotiations, there's frustrations from alumni players and, and retired players about the benefits and, and the way that the union looks after them as well. Um, there's no shortage of controversy hanging over. D. Smith. And it certainly looks like, as you said, this is going to be his last term. I don't think we know exactly how long this term is going to be, but this is not a person that's going to hold this job probably in in four or five years.
0: Yeah. A lot of people find collective bargaining boring. I love it. I I find it extremely interesting, a great glimpse into negotiation, how you go about it, how they try and get what they want. How do they cajole? How do you get popular opinion? Um, I've always wondered about the leverage part of it. What leverage do the players have? And there are so many players and so many different opinions, and you got to try and get them all under one roof and and keep them united. That was difficult in the NBA days when I used to cover those. And that's when the star players and we know the stars in the NBA have a great amount of influence. Like when Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning would show up for a bargaining session, you know, the owners took notice. Like they did have leverage. Stars in the NBA have great leverage. Um, over what's going on i'm just not sure that's true in the nfl you know let's say aaron Rodgers or patrick mahomes what are they going to come out and say all right we're not playing there's so many nameless faceless players in the nfl boy just from a negotiation standpoint it is a very difficult job to take on a group of very wealthy nfl owners who by the way can always make up any lost revenue players cannot Roger Goodell tells them to shut up, and they do, and they let Roger and Robert Kraft and, you know, a small group of owners handle the negotiation. That is a big advantage in labor talks. Uh, I know Demoris is criticized a lot, and I make no bones about saying, you know, I consider DeMorris a friend, but uh, I'm looking at this just, uh, you know, completely objectively in the leverage of negotiation. I'm just not sure how much leverage the NFL players ever have going into these talks this time they had some in that the NFL wanted the labor deal to get the new TV contract. I get it, but that also behooves the players. I mean, the, the amount they're getting is going up due to this new TV deal, um, but you got to give to get. So just a question I've always thrown out there, and you and I have discussed in private, you need some form of leverage to extract something, uh, concessions in negotiations. And I always get the feeling that the NFL owners give just enough to make it seem plausible that yes, they consider the players uh, a, a partnership, even though... I think we know that in reality it's what can we get for ourselves.
1: Yeah, you're 100% right and 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 just to compare the NBA to the NFL as you were doing there, NFL typical player has a, has a much shorter career than the NBA that means their their money situation is a bit tighter and also the the financial situation of owners is actually fairly different in the NFL and NBA. I think the easiest way to to kind of explain that is look at what's happened in the aftermath of the pandemic. We've seen the NBA changed its ownership rules on private equity. A number of LPs and minor and and, and majority holders have have sold equity uh, in the past few months in NBA teams. I don't know what the the, the total is, but there's a lot of NBA owners who were feeling the pinch of the pandemic um, and, and therefore had to unload stakes of some sort. Uh, we've barely seen that in the NFL, if at all right now. There's, there's not to my knowledge. Uh, and I don't think publicly, at least I don't think there's a single uh, large piece or small piece of an NFL team that has traded during the pandemic. So you just get the sense right there that even when times get really tough financially uh, in, in, a, in, in a global pandemic, uh, you see the financial strength of the owners. And that's the, it's kind of the same thing about, uh, about lockouts and, and, and strikes and, and labor disagreements, right? It's, it's the threat of not hosting games and what that means financially. Um, and you saw again, in the pandemic, you saw the financial strength of, of NBA, NFL owners, um, th- that they are able to kind of weather things. I think owners in other leagues are not.
0: Yeah. And as we record this, it's, you know, football is certainly uh, or Sunday is football day in America. But not only just in America, they had a game in the UK, and the Falcons beat the Jets 27-20. to Um, The NFL is more than happy to export the game around the world, and they're trying something different. They're actually asking the teams to do the promoting these days. So a deadline passed not long ago where NFL clubs had to make their submissions on which countries or which territories they would like access to, where they would like to go and invest money. And, and promote the game, promote themselves, promote their, band, their brands, maybe even has some exclusivity on retail, things like that. And uh, from what we learned, you know where it's really popular? Mexico. A lot of teams want to do business in Mexico. We know the Cowboys, Texans, and Steelers were among the half dozen teams that took aim at Mexico. Of course, China, Canada, and Germany, UK, we know Shad Khan, Loves to uh, he he owns Fulham, so he also wants to plant a Jaguars flag in the UK. But they're trying something different. Um, I think a very interesting take to see which teams were going after what territories, and hopefully, as we continue to report on this, find out exactly how many dollars and resources they are willing to commit to the program.
1: Yeah, and not just which teams are going where, but also how many teams are going to participate at all. The expectation that I had heard from folks around the NFL was that they were expecting 15 to 20, something right in that range of teams uh, that, that that were going to submit offers proposals for for international markets. You can certainly see, depending on the strength of a team's brand, where they are located geographically relative to other countries. You can certainly see things that make sense. The Cowboys in Mexico is a perfect example. Um, not that far proximity wise. Massive brand. Stephen Jones told us on a Sportico live event about a month ago, Scott, that, that they were looking to spend and, and build up infrastructure in Mexico much to the same way that they've built up infrastructure and spent both in Dallas and in Frisco. So you, you can see the the way the NFL wants this to work there. If you look at another team, and, and this is the example I've used before, but if you look at the Bengals, how much kind of international resonance do the Bengals think they have? Is it worth whatever the upfront financial cost is to really have to put boots on the ground, to do a lot of marketing in a specific place, to do events, to do fan festivals, etc.? Uh, maybe it's not. So I think there's, there's obviously a number of teams, probably around 10 to a dozen, that are not going to participate at all right now, and all those teams are going watch. They're going to see what if the Cowboys get access in, in Mexico, they're going to see what the Cowboys are doing in Mexico, or they're going to see what the Dolphins are doing in Brazil. Uh, and they're going to see, and and, and they're, and, and they're going to decide if it's worth it for them. But there's some there's some revenue sharing here as well. But yes, I agree with you, Scott. This is something that is not only going to be watched closely within the NFL. Uh, it's going to be watched closely by other leagues as well. Leagues that have uh, a sport that is probably more popular in, in other parts of the country or er, other parts of the world than American football is. And, and if this works for the NFL, I would not be shocked if we see other leagues doing the same thing in terms of prioritizing international growth by leveraging the teams and the expertise that those teams have.
0: Yeah. And and just for the fans who might think that plenty of owners and teams are putting their hands up like, hey, yeah, we'd like to go play in the UK. We'd like to go play outside. We'll we'll be that team. Um let it be known that that's not the case. <laughs> it's, you know, the NFL has been has having to choose and say, you're going now you're going, it's your turn. Everybody's got to take a turn. It's not like they're lining up to do this. And whether it's the problem of losing a home game or whether it's the travel. And I mean, it's no different than going from, you know, the East coast to the West coast, but that just international travel, especially now, maybe a little more difficult. May, maybe it hurts your team when you come back. Uh, suffice to say, that they are not lining up to be, oh, please pick on me next. I want to go play in the UK. That's not the way it's working out. But, uh, you know who is spending money though? Cause we talked about Fulham and Shad, like in the UK, you know, who's spending money on soccer. I know you you do know it's the Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. They, they were busy and they've been trying to get this deal done for a while. And, and, and I'll let you explain why it wasn't getting done. And then why now it is getting done, which is, which is really interesting. Again, gives you a great glimpse into the sports business world. But, uh, The the Saudi uh, Public Investment Fund is part of a group that is acquiring Newcastle of the English Premier League, 400 and something million dollars for the team. And we did have a bunch of people saying, wow, it's amazing to me that MLS teams are going for seven and eight hundred million. And yet Newcastle and the EPL is only 400 something million. Um, Well, there's there's one big word that you don't have to worry about if you buy an an MLS team, and that's relegation, where you lose out on a whole lot of revenue. But what strikes you as noteworthy with the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia investing in Newcastle?
1: something tells me that Newcastle is not going to have to worry about relegation any anytime, anytime soon, Scott, yeah. um, the, the size of, of, of the public investment fund that we're talking about here. Um, I saw these numbers just to put it in context the, the, this investment fund, which is, which is backed by the Saudi government, uh, $435 billion. That's the amount of money in the fund. Uh, Sheikh Mansour, who owns man city, a team that most people consider to have unlimited funds. Uh, he's worth 300 and or, or 31.2 billion. Roman Abram- Abramovich who owns Chelsea, $13 billion, just to give you the, the size and the scale of what we're talking about here. Um, I think you're going to see a playbook here similar to what Sheikh Mansour has done at Man City and what the Qatari Sports Investments QSI has done at, at Paris Saint-Germain, which is uh, back this team with a lot of money, immediately make it one of the biggest spenders in European soccer. The way that salary caps and stuff don't exist over there, it is possible very quickly to, with enough money, kind of scale your team up. These teams tend to push the the financial fair play regulations, et cetera. I would not be shocked to see if in two years, two, three years, Newcastle is a really talented and and powerhouse European club, just like those other ones.
0: All right. So you're saying, wait, so you're saying Man City, Manchester United, right? You're putting that up there. Man City, Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, and we might as well throw Newcastle in there. And Chelsea, we might as well throw Newcastle in there right now.
1: I don't see any reason not to, in, unless this extremely wealthy country slash sovereign wealth fund does not want to spend to make the team good. I imagine that the, the 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 plan here is going to be the same. You asked me earlier what what kind of why this deal, which had been in place for a while, didn't get done. I can explain that briefly. Um, the uh, <laughs> Saudi Arabia had blocked B in. Um, which is owned by the same group that owns, essentially the same group that owns Paris Saint-Germain. BN is a television network. It had rights to the English Premier League in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia, because of tensions between Saudi Arabia, the country, and Qatar, had blocked BN from being available in the country. So the the European, the European Middle Eastern broadcasts of EPL were not being shown in Saudi Arabia because of this fight between the two countries. When Saudi Arabia decided that it was going to allow in to air, to broadcast EPL games in the country, country that was the thing that kind of greased the wheels to get this done so it's kind of part of a broader geopolitical kind of cooling between these two countries uh two very wealthy countries obviously Saudi Arabia and Qatar um but because Saudi Arabia was going to allow those games to be broadcast again uh in uh in its country that kind of get this got this deal done the EPL Scott has said it received assurances that the Saudi government was not going to be involved in the day to day operation of this team. Uh, it seems like almost everybody reporting who knows soccer is extremely skeptical about what that assurance looks like. Um, again, this is a government that has, there's some documented human rights abuses. Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist w- w- was killed there, um, or, or was killed kind of on, on order. It seems like from, from the government. Um, but I, I think this is going to be the, this is going to be the big thing people focus on is how separated is the owner ownership of this team from the Saudi government, even though the EPL says they're going to be arm's length.
0: All right. So let's end on a story that doesn't make much sense to me. That's a head scratcher as opposed to that investment that does make sense to me. But news came out, the federal, the feds charged 18 former NBA players in a healthcare fraud. Now, some of these guys, you know, earned multiple millions of dollars in, in their career. And Names you might know, Ruben Patterson, Jamario Moon, Glenn, Big Baby Davis. Um, in essence, they submitted claims for like dental work that had not been done. And the feds in the indictment, they say they have proof that some of these players uh, th- say they got work done when one was flying to Paris, another when the cell phone records show they were clearly somewhere else. Um, I mean, from the start to just say it doesn't seem well thought out. <laughs> I mean, that's understating it. But in essence, I mean, you're also taking from your own. Like that's kind of, you know, the family there. Um, I, th- this one's got me scratching my my head. I've been like, uh, the more you read about it, I, I know it's very simplistic, but you're just going to, what in God's name were you thinking? That's the only thing that comes to mind.
1: It's, it seems like these guys were better at basketball than they were at, uh, at, at healthcare fraud <laughs> in the, uh, and some of the them weren't all that yeah, good and, at basketball. <laughs> well, for NBA players, maybe not. Yeah, um, but but yeah, you're right. It's certainly a, a, a bizarre one. Um, you know, falsifying claims about procedures. That was Big Baby Davis, I believe. Scott, the, the, the that 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 flight story you told, where they kind of looked at his flight records and his cell phone records and realized that he wasn't even in Beverly Hills on the day that he claimed that he got a a $27,000, uh, dental procedure done. So yeah, no question that this is probably not the most well thought out and certainly not the most executed, uh, healthcare fraud that that the country's ever seen.
0: I I mean, it was like the work was all done on the same day. They all got the same procedure. I I, I don't even know where to go with this. You You know what, one of these days I'm going to call up our friend, Mike McCann and go, you know, in the pantheon of stupid, you know, where, where does this rank? Because I, it just, I, and by the way, innocent until proven guilty. This is alleged. They will have the opportunity to answer these charges, but as spelled out, I am still scratching my head. Anyway, he is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will very soon become the Sportico Podcast Network.